this message is, it's heavy on my heart. Forty years ago, I was at a Bible study, and this passage of Scripture, enter through the narrow gate, for few are they that find it. Enter through the broad gate. That broad gate attracts many. They both say heaven, and they both say eternal life, but only one is there. And so as we're going through that Bible study, I read that, and I was stunned at the and shocked at the uh, exclusive entrance. It's so narrow and it's so confining and so difficult. Why is that? I don't know. Um, but we're going to look at what the scripture says about it here. And as I start this, I was thinking as Ethan was uh, praying and, and <laughs> sorry. When I think of um, the next generation, soon I won't be here anymore. I'm 76 years old. I don't have much time left. But these young men that, that God has called to this church corporately, when I see the hearts of, of uh, the Ethans and, and the, the Zachs and the, the um, I can't remember all your names, but uh, we meet every other Friday and we spend two and a half hours praying, looking at the scriptures together. But discipleship, I believe, because Jesus believes it, the last thing he said before he went to heaven is, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And if you try to go through this narrow gate and you think you're through it, and all of a sudden, 10 years go by, your heart goes cold, <laughs> excuse me, goes cold, and it slips away. And uh, we're going we're gonna to talk to this end, how the scripture speaks to... Um, Staying on the alert. This is a very narrow, confining way. So if you have your Bibles, I'm sure you do, would you turn to, uh, with me to Matthew chapter 7? And we're going to take a look at these. We're going to spend most of the time in verses 13 and 14. Uh, and then I hope I don't confuse you. I hope the scriptures are clear and uh, that your heart will receive this truth. Um, so... In verses, uh, we said 13 and 14, you're going to see two life choices. You've got the narrow gate, and you've got the broad gate. And then we come down to verses 15 through 20, and he's going to deal with false prophets. What does that look like in my life? I'm unable to discern what a false prophet, false teaching looks like. And in verse 21 through 13, we see the true way into the kingdom. And then in verses 24 through 27, there's two foundations. And finally, the crowd's response after this incredible teaching, they gasped. Uh, they just, they were stunned. So, the narrow gate, which is the entrance and the pathway that leads to the kingdom of God, it's broad, but it leads to destruction. If God has called us through the narrow gate, we must, be continue, we must continue to be vigilant in testing ourselves to see if indeed we really entered through that narrow gate into heaven. God calls us to examine ourselves privately and corporately. I need you people to help examine me, and we need to be examining ourselves daily where we stand. Um, as we look at this passage in Matthew 7, verses 13 through 14, 
we can't help but be stunned by Christ's shocking, exclusive, difficult entry into the kingdom of heaven. Christ's urgent command comes within just a few verses that end the entire Sermon on the Mount. One commentary says this. They say, um, they said, uh, let's see, here we go. Uh, and he will restore the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and smite the land with the curse, Malachi 4.6. And then by contrast, this first great sermon of the New Testament begins with a series of blessings, which we call the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 3 through 12. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they inherit the kingdom of God. Remember those? And then it's been said, the Old Testament ends with the warning of a curse. But the New Testament, it begins with the promise of a blessing. The Old Testament was characterized by Mount Sinai, with its law, its thunder and lightning, and its warnings of judgment and cursing. And the New Testament is characterized by Mount Zion with its grace, its salvation, and its healing, and its promises of peace and blessings, Hebrews 18. The Old Testament law demonstrates man's need for salvation, and the New Testament message offers the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord had to begin with a proper presentation of the law so the people would recognize their sin and then could come, and then could come the author of salvation, Jesus Christ. The Sermon on the Mount clarifies the reasons for the curse and it shows that man has no righteousness that can survive the scrutiny of God. The new message offers blessings, and that is the Lord's opening offer. That's the end of that quote. There are two gates, two roads. One gate, one road leads to the kingdom of heaven. The other gate and road leads to hell. One path brings people safely into the kingdom of heaven, and the other path leads people into hell. The Greek word for enter means to go or come into, but it also conveys the sense of urgency, calling for immediate action. Don't delay. Enter now. Don't procrastinate, is the idea. We don't want just to admire the principles of the Sermon on the Mount, but to follow those principles which enable us to fulfill them, which are ultimately only possible by becoming a new creation in Christ, which is by grace through faith. Enter conveys an urgent warning. Beware of putting it off. Doing business with Jesus, making absolutely sure you know him intimately and not just that you know about him. Many of us, we can know about God, we can know about Jesus, but to know him intimately what does that look like? J.C. Ryle states, he was a, lived in early 1800s, died about the end of that time. He said, it's not the mere knowing of Christ's name, it is the knowing of his mercy. Do you know his mercy? Do you know his grace, the power of him? It's not just hearing about him, 
but by the experience of your hearts by faith. He is my strength, my peace, my life, my consolation. He's my physician. He's my shepherd, my savior, and my God. Jesus is urgently calling people through the narrow gate to enter it now. Don't put it off. In the Old Testament, God calls his people to know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and he and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pastor. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise, Psalms 100 verse 4 says. And in the New Testament, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God, John 3, 5. So here we are. We're standing at these two gates. One says enter heaven through the narrow gate. The other says enter heaven through the broad gate. How do we distinguish between the two? And how can you even find the gate which is mentioned in verse 14? The broad gate looks enticing. It's quite visible. You can see it. I can come as I am. There's not much demanded of me. Maybe I'll make a few moral and ethical adjustments. I can bring much of my earthly baggage with me. It looks like I can still hold on tightly to all my worldly possessions as I journey along. And as long as I just live a nice, quiet, safe, relatively obedient life, I don't really have to, to share the gospel with anybody and be persecuted or shamed. I can even go so far as to say, like a little, down, a little farther down these verses, Lord, Lord, I have prophesied in your name. I've even cast out demons. I've performed many miracles in your name. But this broad gate looks, it looks pretty safe with minimal, minimal risk. I can do lots of stuff. Charles Spurgeon, I love these quotes. They had it down. The narrow gate, it is a way of self-denial. It is a way of humility. It is a way which is distasteful to the natural pride of men. It is a precise way. It's, it is a holy way, a straight way. And therefore, men do not care for it. They are too big. We are too proud to go along that narrow lane to heaven. Yet this is the right way. There are many broad ways, and you may know them by their being broad. And you may know them by their being crowded. The Christian man must swim against the current, and he has to do more than that. He has to go against himself. So straight is the road. But if you wish to go down to perdition, you have only to float with the stream, and you can have any quantity of company that you like. End of quote. Yet the broad gate in fine print is, is actually saying that it leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. John Bunyan, another one of my heroes, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress said, we see the stark contrast between the two pilgrims. One is burdened and the other is not. One is clutching a book that is a light to his path. The other is guideless. One is on a journey to the pursuit of deliverance from besetting sins, 
and rest for his soul, and the other is on the journey in order to obtain future delights that temporarily dazzle his mind. One is slow and plodding because of his great weight and a sense of his own unrighteousness. The other is light-footed and impatient to obtain all the benefits of heaven. One is in motion because his soul has been stirred up to both fear and hope. The other is dead to any spiritual fears, longings, or aspirations. One is seeking God. The other is seeking self-satisfaction. One is a true pilgrim, and the other is a false fading. End of quote. It's at this point when God turns a heart of stone into a heart of flesh that he will draw a person to him soberly to reflect on this narrow gate and begin to examine the cost and the blessings that this entrance promises. God himself calls on us. We do not initially call upon him. For as Romans 3 says, no man seeks after God, not a one. Out of the thousands that started with Jesus, remember this, how many started with him? Only a few chose the narrow gate to follow him. The choice is made at the crossroad of Christ. Choose life or choose death. Everyone is confronted with a decision as to which way he should go. The Lord is pressing hard for man to make a choice. Ever since he came into the, to the world 2,000 years ago, he was pressing man, look at my miracles, look what I do, look how I love, uh, and look like I, how I hate sin. He was wanting us to make a choice. The second thing you cannot do is put off a decision until tomorrow or some future moment that you might find yourself willing. Jesus is demanding a decision now. Many people want to push the Sermon on the Mount to the future kingdom or admire the ethical or the kind side of the sermon. But this is an urgent call. Second Corinthians, Paul said, Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Isaiah 55, 6 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Now call upon him. Hebrews 7, 8 says, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. Jesus was demanding an immediate decision to act upon what he just said, and deliberately, a, a deliberate choice had to be made. He is the king. He's the king of kings. He was exploring the uniqueness of his kingdom and articulating the principles of entering his kingdom and how we must respond to the invitation of it. Now he's given us two choices, enter it or reject it. This most uncommon entrance through the narrow gate is exclusive and intensely personal. The call of our Savior is for one at a time. We alone respond to Christ by stepping out from the crowd and the seduction of the world. 
It isn't enough that your friend or family members are saved. You must alone respond to Christ's call. You must alone, by an act of repentance, a repentance that's from above, not a Judas repentance, sorry he got caught, but a repentance that's eternal and it's repenting to a holy God. Repentance and faith, trusting in Christ is the only criteria by which any man may enter. You must enter with great difficulty. Some might be alarmed by that statement, but think of it. How many people, this is my observation, and I'm sure many of yours too, how many people have you observed that have truly, truly been converted from darkness into light? And the conversion which there is evidence of ongoing fruit of the Spirit. There's a transformation that continues ongoing. There's a great allegiance and a love for God. There's an amazing passion and a love for the body of Christ, the church. You want to serve one another and be engaged and learn how to forgive and move forward with one another. A true repentance that proved a life change. It's transformation. I think we would agree that we have not seen many that stayed on that course. I mean, if I had to start writing a list 50 years ago, it's shocking. All those loved ones that I knew that said, I don't need that anymore. I don't need that. I tried that. And um, it slipped away. That's another reason why I believe discipleship is so important. When a person makes a confession of faith, get with them one-on-one, -on -one, older man with uh, uh, younger man and vice versa with women, and pour into their lives, pray with them, love them, encourage them, warn them. Another aspect of entering the narrow gate with great difficulty is that of being stripped free of every encumbrance and of sin that so easily entangles us. Um, that's, that's Hebrews 12.1. Fixing your eyes upon Jesus, the author of perfecter of faith. Uh, keep your eyes on the goal. Don't look right or left. Keep on it. If you ever watch someone run, they're not looking back. They're looking forward to the finish gate. And they're stripping everything that might slow them down. That's the way we have. That's the idea of stripping off of self-righteousness. As we go through the, uh, the turnstile at the entry of the narrow gate. Remember at Disneyland, that little... Turns out you squeeze through, you can't take a bunch of stuff through there with you. Um, the gate will not allow any worldly baggage to enter into the kingdom. No anger. This is ongoing. This is habitual practicing. No ongoing anger, immorality, pride, envy, strife, jealousy, lack of forgiveness, just to name a few. You know the list. The rich man, the rich, the rich young ruler was searching for a way into the kingdom of heaven and he said good teacher what should I do to inherit eternal life Jesus said that's simple keep my commandments the young ruler's response was oh I've kept them all from my youth notice the self-righteousness of the rich young ruler really you've kept them all then Jesus strikes a deep blow into his heart. One thing you still lack, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasures in heaven, and then come, follow me. 
But when he heard these things, he became very sad because he was extremely rich. And he was so encumbered with the bulky weight and baggage of self-righteousness and his God of money and worldly comforts that he could not release his grip. Luke 18.22 states that when they heard that, they said, then who can be saved? Who can be saved? Well, Jesus said to the disciples, truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It is easier for a camel, visualize this, a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus said to them, with people this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So Jesus was driving the point home that salvation is not an easy thing. Self-dependence, pride, secret sins, holding on to the world with one hand and the other hand reaching for the kingdom of heaven, they're not, can't, they're not compatible. They just don't work. We must enter like the little children as in Matthew 18, 4, where Jesus states, whoever then humbles himself as a child he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. When's the last time you focused on humility in your life? And on the other hand, how many of you have witnessed those that raised their hand, they came forward at an altar call, maybe signed a card, or got baptized multiple times, right, Megan? And even joined the church, asked Jesus to come into their heart. And then over the course of time, with the pressures of life, and the many disappointments of the world culture pressing in on their life, we see that the foundation that was laid was upon, they laid it upon shifting sand, and when the wind and the storms of trial and suffering raged against their lives, they slowly began to drift into obscurity and isolation. Their lives were lost in a sea of despair and depression. Marriages often begin to fail, often we see them renouncing their decision for Christ and their indifference to the word of God and to God's people, to God's people, the church. It should break, it should break our hearts at the long list of those that started and did not finish the race. We know that the way to heaven, it is difficult because God's word tells us that it is. It is very difficult but he says, take on my yoke, and my burden is light. He's going to come along with us. That's a positive side. He's not going to tempt us beyond what we're able. Now, if we take your Bibles, uh, you're in Matthew. If you go back to uh, uh, Matthew chapter 10, and let's read verses 34 to 39 and describe uh, with more detail how difficult um, and just, just how difficult it is to get into the kingdom. So uh, Matthew 10, verses 34 through 39. Uh, Chris preached on this passage uh, a month or so ago. But let's remind ourselves how narrow this gate is, how difficult to enter the kingdom of heaven. All right, here we go. Do you think that I came to bring peace on earth? I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies 
will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me, he is not worthy of me. And then he says, he who has found his life, he will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. There's some great hyperboles in there, but there's a, there's a radical truth coming on here. Those of you believers that have unbelieving, unbelieving family members, you can identify with these words of Jesus. I did not come to bring peace on earth, but I came to bring a sword. And when he, and, and so when we as believers obediently speak the exclusive call of the gospel in the lives of family and friends, no matter how well-versed we are and how gentle we are and winsome we are, we are messengers of God's living word that's active and sharper than a two-edged sword and piercing. It goes deep into it and it cuts. So we're carrying the word when we're sharing it with those loved ones and those friends and, that are around us. His word is offensive. It's foolishness to those that are perishing, it says. Um, the, the message, it cuts deep like a sword. How many hours of prayer have you logged praying for your lost loved ones? How many tears have you shed? I know many of you well, and I know, I know the, the reality of that. How many sleepless nights have you begged God to save their souls? So the normal tendency is to silence the gospel message or soften it. And we justify negotiating a, a modified version that broadens the gate, kind of come as you are, you're going to be okay, type of adjustment that are, that are less restrictive and more world-friendly. But there are only two gates, both say heaven, on the entrance, but only one gets you there. Now, if we look, if we go back to Matthew 7, uh, verse 14, he says, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few that find it. There's given us an implication that we must find the gate. Some might, some might ask, is it lost? Many will search and look for a God and will allow for an easy entrance. They create a God of their own liking, a God that will give them a heaven because they were good enough, definitely better than my neighbor down the street. So defining the narrow gate implies great difficulty. It's not easy. There's but a few that find it. Proverbs 8.17 says, I love those who love me, and I love those who diligently seek me, and they will find me. Deuteronomy 4.29 says, But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him. If you search for him with all your heart and with all your soul. Luke 13 says, uh, just where Ethan read, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And Jesus said to them, strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. The word strive comes from the Greek word that means to 
agonize over. There's no cheap, easy way to enter the kingdom of heaven. There's no one that can... There's no one that can confirm your salvation based upon some signing of a card or raising of a hand. The reason we are called to seek with agony and intense searching is because God requires a total abandonment of our self-righteousness. No performance based on our good works, but a humble, desperate plea for the righteousness of Christ to be given to us begging for his righteousness to be imputed to us. He, uh, he went to the cross so that we might not have to go to the cross. He gave us life that we did not deserve. Thinking through that great substitutionary work that he did, he paid the price. And when that takes place, an indescribable joy and peace floods the soul. Ask anybody that received Christ and, and the burdens of sin that weighed them for years uh, the release of what that looked like. So Romans 8, 1 and 2 says, therefore, when this happens, the heart's converted, there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. Oh, the joy. Therefore, there's now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. The only entrance the only entry is by the means of his great mercy. It's by Christ's infinite grace that is extended to the true believer by which we come. All of man's prideful works of righteousness must be crucified, nailed with Christ upon the cross to die. Man must repent and beg for mercy. Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And when the great exchange of our filthy rags for Christ's righteous robe takes place, we are then transformed into new creatures. The old things have passed away, and behold, new things have come. True conversion is by those who are grieved by the weight of their sin, and they mourn in meekness over their desperate condition, hungering and thirsting after the righteousness found only in Christ. Why is the kingdom of heaven not an easy place to find or an easy place to enter? Because all of hell is against man. Satan and his demonic powers wage war against man. Satan and his demonic powers are trying to overcome man, to trip him up. Not to mention, we've got the world, culture, the flesh, and its, and its powerful seductions. One of Satan's lies is that it's easy to become a Christian as long as you go to church once in a while and you're a fairly nice person. You try to stay out of trouble. But come, you know, you think, well, I'll just come as I am. I'm, I'm going to be okay. God accepts you as you are with your fame, your wealth, and your possessions. God will overlook your desires of, I want the world and I want heaven too. But remember, it is an extremely narrow gate, and you go through it agonizing over your sin. And you must repent in confession of your formal idols of, formal idols of sin and self. The true gospel message is a renunciation of our old self-absorbed ways and entrusting our lives to Christ in obedience 
to his lordship. It's to be broken. It's to have a contrite heart and spirit. It's to get into the kingdom of God. It's not a human achievement of works-based righteousness. It's, it's his works. All our righteousness is as filthy rags. We need his righteousness. We need to beg for that to be imputed into our lives. Titus 3.5 says, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. That's a great passage to memorize and have bathed in your soul. No, it's when we recognize the broken wretchedness of our vile sinful state that, was, that has separated us from a holy, just God that cannot look upon the smallest of sin. We have broken his law, his holy, infinite law, the Ten Commandments. At every level, we've lied, we've stolen, we've, we've been adulterers at heart. Uh, the list goes on, you know, the ten. It's when the weight of the law bears down upon our heart and convicts us of our sin and our unworthiness. Then Christ cleanses us with grace upon grace, mercy upon mercy, and the result is we now can see, our ears can hear, and our heart of stone, God has turned into flesh, and it now can respond to the truth. Remember Ezekiel when he says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues. And you will be careful. Then you will be careful to observe my ordinances. So, we then are alive when that heart begins to beat. Went from stone to flesh. It begins to beat spiritually. We, begin to, we have a relationship with Jesus Christ. We then are alive. We are free from the bondage of sin. We then contemplate the transformation of our death into life, being rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred into his kingdom of his beloved son and in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And our joyous response is, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. True Christians, we must examine ourselves, test ourselves in light of these following verses. So now we're, we're getting towards the end here. Uh, sorry to drag this out. But another powerful scripture to have locked into your mind is 2 Corinthians 13.5. You've heard, it, heard me repeat it many times. Test yourself to see if you are in the faith. This is what Paul's saying to believers. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you fail the test. Okay, so now uh, we're at Matthew 7, I think, still. Let's move down to verse 15. It's a good way to test yourself and the lives of others. 
Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. All right, false prophets will promote. They're going to promote the broad gate. They're not going to say, no, that's not the one. They're going to show you that that gate is accessible. That one gets you into heaven. Be discerning. Hang on to sound doctrine. Stay close to a healthy church. Examine the fruits and the teachings and the lives of teachers and preachers and those that operate on the fringes of the churches. Those that may murmur, slander, gossip, promote themselves and not God. They cause divisions. Paul was constantly dealing with divisions because of the flesh was just allowing the churches to, to come apart. Um, Let's see. The, 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 deeds, the, the deeds of the flesh are explained in, um, in Galatians chapter uh, 5, 19. It says, those that practice idolatry, enmity, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, which are a fruit of the flesh. We need to examine ourselves. Is this a consistent part of my life? Uh, it doesn't mean we're not going to do some of these. But if we practice those things, beware. Examine yourselves. And then um, in verse 16 and 20, how do we recognize who these false prophets are? You will recognize them by their fruits. Great analogies. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit, it's cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. I have some bad trees. I live up in the orchards, and the smoke is still wafing across my property. And it's a reminder, those were bad trees. They were not bearing good fruit, but all the more in a believer's life, um, the analogy, the analogy uh, reigns true. In contrast, these false prophets practicing the fruit of the Spirit, excuse me, in contrast, are these false prophets practicing the fruit of the Spirit? No. Is there love? Is there joy? Is there peace? Is there patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? I could spend the rest of my life trying to figure those out and live them out and it would be a life full. But we have to examine ourselves in light of those. Was that a nice thing to say? Was that a nice way to operate? Was I patient? Was I kind? Was I under control or out of control? Are we bearing the image of Christ? This should be very sobering. It should be a daily evaluation. Then if we look at uh, verse 23 and 24... Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Those that did not make it into the kingdom of God, they emphatically cry out, Lord, Lord, 
They plead on the basis of their works righteousness. It's not just on self-promoting deeds that we do in the flesh, but where is our allegiance? Where is our heart given to? Is it to self or is it to Christ? What a wonderful way to examine every motive of your life. Where is our first love? Is our first love the first commandment, remember, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's where it starts. And loving him for how he graced us and gave us life. Begin every day, live every day. What a great way to examine yourself. And then it drives us to love our neighbors as ourselves. It's a call to obey his commandments. By this we know that we have come to know him. Here's how we, simple. Here's how you can come to know if you know him. If we keep his commandments, the one who says I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. 1 John 2, 3 and 5. It's not our perfection. We mentioned this before. It's not that we have to be perfect. We can't. The flesh is still pulling us down. But it's the direction. Where are we headed? Are we repenting? Are we staying close to the body? Are we murmurers and we drifting and, and complaining? Are we drawing in, serving humbly? This is a great, difficult task. Then we go down to uh, verse 24 and 26. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them, they may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rains fell, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against the house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them, he will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against the house that fell, and great was its fall. So another test is, uh, which we can examine ourselves, uh, is what is our foundation like? What does that look like in, our, in, our believers, in a believer's life? The house can look pretty attractive. I'm a builder. And you can build a pretty nice house on the dirt, but if it does not have a foundation under it, a reinforced solid foundation, it can look very attractive, nice cabinets, carpet, everything can look wonderful. But if the rains come, what's going to happen to that house? If it's not reinforced with concrete steel upon firm soil, and when the storms of life come, they will come, wind, rain, floods, the devil will unleash his wrath upon that house, our lives. And it's not likely our lives will weather the storm. In due time, our health, as we get older, I'm noticing in my life, our health isn't what it used to be, and my intellect... It's never been there. And, but if, if we are not humbly given over to Christ's sufficiency, if we are not been born again into the kingdom of God through confession of sin, begging for God's mercy, clinging to the cross, not once, daily, ongoing, clinging to the cross, with empty hands and turning from our sins and facing Christ and entrusting our lives to him, the house will fall and its fall will be great. 
our lives can look attractive above ground, but in time, in the season, um, will it survive the coming storms? Self-examination. And it's something we personally have to do. And verse 28 and 29, finally. When Jesus had finished these words, you can imagine, they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Here we are towards the end of his, he's getting ready to leave, and they were standing there, they'd seen him do miracles, healings, uh, make profound statements, and they were absolutely amazed that he was commenting as he was. So here we are at the end of uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Did I read that passage? I passed 28 and 29? Oh, I did. Okay, sorry. Got carried away there. So here we are at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and the sermon started in chapter 5, right, with the Beatitudes, and it ends in chapter 7, revealing the two gates that both say heaven on them. The crowds were stunned. They were shocked and amazed at Jesus' teaching. Unlike the scribes, unlike the scribes, Jesus quoted only God's word, and he spoke as the final authority. Um, and then he spoke clearly. I, I love the way he spoke. He spoke clearly, wasn't complex, and emphatically, lovingly, simply, and directly. Where in contrast, the Pharisees spoke with bitterness, coldness, deception, and harshness to the people, and with no appeal to a higher authority than themselves. Many watched Jesus, they listened to him, they gleaned from his miracles, they were amazed at his authority, but few were willing to follow him through that narrow gate because the cost was too high. You had to give it all up. Most then, as well as now, are content with the broad gate. If there's any doubt, even the slightest, that you're on the path that is truly leading to the kingdom of God, if there's any doubt, you must examine yourselves now, people, and daily see if you are in the faith. As the Beatitudes uh, state, you must come to Jesus on his terms. Are you poor in spirit? Is there a brokenness? Do you mourn over your sins? Are you a repenting people? Are you crushed into meekness and humility? Are you hungering and thirsting for righteousness? The marks that characterize you as a Christian today, not for what happened to you and what you did in the past. Here's what they are. These are the things that mark you today. Are you living righteously? Are you obedient? Are you distinguished from the rest of the world? Do you have right thinking by taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ? What's your speech like? Is your speech Christ-like? Are, you, are your outward actions giving testimony of your inward change? If you're a Christian, prove it. There should be a healthy fear of standing before a holy, just God who exercises perfect wrath on those who reject him and yet lavishes his grace on those that repent and turn to follow him in, in obedience. Now is the time to call up him, on him. Don't put it off. If you are saved, examine yourselves in light of these scriptural truths. 
for all of us, all of us started out. We all fell short of the glory of God. We all sinned and fall short. And you know what the, the sin is? The, the payment for sin, um, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If there's a, if there's a doubt about which road you're on, please talk. Talk. Ask some people around here. Uh, there's many that have been saved recently. Um, and there are some here who recently have opened up, made their public, uh, public confession. And you're going to see transformed lives when you talk to them. Amazing. We've seen some baptisms here with um, a 95-year-old and an 88-year-old and a, and a 23-year-old. Absolutely amazing. In my life, I've never seen someone converted at those times of their life. That's the power of God that transforms life. But talk to them. They'll tell you about a life of, of living in grief and then living with the sweetness of Jesus Christ dominating their lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, through my mumbling, I pray that your scriptures were heard. I pray that uh, if seed is to be planted, if souls are to be converted, you would do that work and we will glorify you and honor you for all eternity. You are worthy. God, thank you for demonstrating your own love towards us. Amazingly, you demonstrated that love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. Let us never lose sight of the greatness of our salvation, how sinful we were, and how you went to the cross for us. Now, thank you for Faith Bible Church, Father. Thank you for the people that visited today. Bless their lives. Draw them close to you. We are unworthy, but you are worthy. In Jesus' holy name, amen.